drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome to this serious episode of Season 3, Episode 31, Drive-by Cinema podcast where we watch movies so you don't have to. With me is my co-host Paul. Thank you. Uh, welcome everybody and uh, greetings to my co-host Richard. And I have to start straight away eating humble pie. Oh, go on. I know you enjoy this when I do this. <laughs> last week, what movie were we talking about last week? There's a test for you, Paul. Um, we were talking about a really uh, exciting uh, movie that we both really enjoyed. Called? Uh, and we both thought it was pretty funny. Uh, Maybe. And it was like, oh, I'm getting that, I'm getting that. And we both were excited that it, you know, it approached tropes about college without it being too kind of cliched. And it was Happy Death Day that I remembered. Happy Death Day. Pay for time well read, didn't I? In Happy Death Day, I criticised the scientific validity of setting fire to a puddle of gasoline. Not so, apparently. That had leaked out of a car. I suggested that you couldn't do that, that if it was lying on the ground, it wouldn't set on fire. That's not true. As any listener who had thought to try it out in the intervening time would have discovered. Actually, we, should, we need to put, go back and put a disclaimer on this. A strong one, disclaimer, yeah. If you light petrol lying on the ground or It will elsewhere, indeed light a trail. It will. It will if you use, and this is important. Uh, a blowtorch. A flame. In the film, they used a lit birthday candle. Is that not a flame? That will set the petrol off fine. Absolutely fine. N- nothing wrong with the film at all. It was with my understanding. It is true. It is true that a lit cigarette won't light petrol. And I have seen YouTube videos of a guy with a bottle of petrol. Then why can't you smoke in the petrol station? Now, the reason that... Uh, a cigarette won't ignite petrol is interesting. I have heard it said that a petrol, uh, that, sorry, a cigarette end isn't hot enough. I think it's between 500 and 900 degrees C, tip of a cigarette. It's pretty hot. It melts skin. I have heard it said online somewhere that, and just to finish the point I was making, I have seen a YouTube video where a guy gets a bottle of petrol he lights it with a match. So you can see that it's petrol and the vapour burns in from the coming off from the, the liquid. Then he puts it out. Then he takes a cigarette. He takes a drag so it's glowing bright no way. and hot. And he drops it in there. And it just falls in and it extinguishes in the fluid. Whoa. I've heard it said that a, a cigarette end is not hot enough. I'm not even sure that's true. I, I have heard unread an account by a guy who used to work for Esso and stuff like that. And he said that uh, the ash acts as like a flame mesh or something. You know the way Davy lamps used to work, where the flame would be behind a mesh? Oh, like some sort of a Faraday cage for flame. Mm, I think Yeah, I think it's something to do with the thermal transfer, and it doesn't allow the, the heat energy to get out quickly enough. enough. I don't... Certainly, Humphrey Davy did design lamps for miners, which did not ignite the coal dust and the flammable gases in the mines. And it used a a sort of wire mesh. And apparently, I think this SO engineer was trying to explain that cigarette ash acts as a very effective barrier of the same kind. Uh But I don't know. It's complicated physical chemistry, isn't it? Of, Of the kind that I don't really understand, never studied, so... All of which is to say, don't <laughs> lay a trail of petrol thinking you won't be able to light it, because you probably will, unless you're using a cigarette, but who smokes anymore anyway? And vapes, who, God knows, because they have a little glowy thing in them, don't they, vapes? I don't know whether they're safe. But... Irrelevant, but what are we talking about? I don't know, Paul, because this month we have started off, I don't know whether we'll continue, we'll see, looking at time-travelling movies. As a consequence of which, I felt compelled, for some reason, to go back to a movie that we watched way back when, Series 1. The first movie we watched in the cinema during lockdown, and that was Tenet. And have you watched it again? 
I've watched it. I mean, I have well, watched bought, it again. You bought it, haven't you, Rich? I bought it like as soon as I could. So I've watched uh-huh. it several times. But now, watching it again now feels like I've got perspective on it. And, yeah. you know, so after the first flush of having seen it initially and also having learned a lot more, read a lot more about it, I, I now feel like, like I understand it a lot more as a consequence of having rewatched it and also read around it. So I'm in a much sort of, I feel like I'm in a better place with Tenet. And I've got to say, I think it's a masterpiece. I really... You love it. I'm blown away by how good it is. Yeah. I think it's astonishingly, frighteningly good. It has its critics. I understand that. And you were one of them, Paul. You oh, I, don't as... think, I don't think I scored it badly, Richard. No. I, I made some interjective critical statements about it, which I think you know may or may not have been valid, but I don't think I was overtly, uh, adversely hostile to the whole experience. The standard criticisms that you get are that no one can hear the dialogue. Yes. And that there's no... The, the characters are very kind of one-dimensional. There's no development of the characters. But, you know, it's an Ethan Hawke kind of thing, isn't it? So. And finally, the usual criticism is that it's too complicated to yeah. understand. But it's that complexity that I love. I've really got a lot out of it. It's like watching... Have you ever seen the guys who have you seen the have you ever seen puzzle boxes? Which are like escape rooms, but the other way around. Where someone will make a really complicated, intricate puzzle, like that's a box or something similar or an object. Mm. And you've got a you never seen any of these? I've seen them in China, yeah. There's a great YouTube video of a guy called I think his name is Chris Ramsey, mm. who does these puzzle boxes, and because he's got a big YouTube following now, he gets puzzle box makers to send him more and more elaborate and really expensive puzzle box setups that he does on YouTube. And it's amazing, like, what people have made and how he figures it out. It's really cool. I'll, I'll drop it in the show notes or something. You can have a look. But I don't think Tenet is staged in that way. It's not revelatory. It doesn't tease or reveal its puzzles, does it? It's not, it's not a guided kind of tour into discovery, is it? It's not what you call a sequential discovery puzzle. And no. that's because, in a way, well, when you've watched the whole movie, it's all laid out before you, except certain bits that are not shown at all, which, again, I think is a valid criticism in some senses. Mm. But as you start to understand how all the pieces fit together, it just gets more and more amazing. Okay, well, I will revisit it. I'll give it a second go and see if, uh, see if it kind of uh, grows on me. I have to say that I was kind of going there the first hour expecting it to be a lot more lightweight than it was and I wasn't particularly paying that much attention apart to, apart from the explosions and stuff like that it's got to be seen more than once I know that's you said that's a failing but it's made to be seen failing, more yeah, than once yeah. it's made to be seen more than once but I really think if you make a movie that, sorry to enjoy, if you make a movie that needs to be watched more than once then you need to bill it as such you know with free TED talk with free symposium afterwards you know <laughs> I mean, it needs to be structured as such way. I, so I'd be at the front of the queue for that film. <laughs> so, so uh, yet it isn't. I mean, if you're going to bill it so you can come and watch once, then it has to fail on that, on that footing, doesn't it? If you're selling your movie as the saviour of cinema in the middle of lockdown, then yeah, maybe maybe that's yeah, too much. Come on to that. I think we're just moving about to talk about today. But, listen, before we do that, audio. And it's not just Tenet. A lot of people complain about a lot of TV and movies uh-huh. being harder and harder to understand. Why? Everybody apparently these days is watching everything with subtitles, irrespective of language. That's just a young person thing. Just a young person thing. They just like watching it with subtitles, even though they can hear what's going on. Oh, that's nice. They follow along with their finger. Under, no, it allows them to multitask and maybe, you know, but process. reading more. subtitles... It's harder for multitasking, as I keep saying on this podcast. It is, yeah. yeah. So I don't know what they're doing. But I think the reason is this, right? In the olden days, the golden era of cinema, you know, the way that movies were made and sound was recorded, you know, you'd have microphones with those big, like, cast iron mesh things, and they would have to hide them, you know, elaborately in plant pots on the sets or dangle them down. And they just weren't very good at picking up... They weren't very sensitive at picking up sounds unless you were really close to them. And so pretty much inevitably, I think it was expected, especially if you were filming outside and stuff, if you were doing exterior scenes, 
I think it was pretty much expected that your film was going to have to be dubbed. Yeah. They were going to have to dub the dialogue in a sound with stage. Coconut shells, yeah. With Foley to replace all the background ambience. Exactly right. That was the standard part of the movie-making process. As technology improved, uh, which means not only the microphones and the sound recording equipment, the move to digital recording, the ability to manipulate all of the audio with better tools, it became more and more possible to use the sound that was recorded live. Mm -hmm. And there are many advantages to that. You know, it's more naturalistic. You know, the, the actors acting and their physicality comes across in the audio. It doesn't sound like it was recorded on a soundstage like a lot of audio can do when it's, you know, done in a booth. But most important of all, it's cheaper, right? You don't have to pay your expensive actors to Twice. record all of their dialogue, you know. In and the, they're in the expensive. Stage. They're expensive. They can be, yeah. So... Oh no, hell, hell! I hired some uh, some voice actors doing a project once, uh, and they were based in New York, and they came with a sound engineer. You know, so it was the whole thing: they, the studio uh, and the sound engineer and the voice actor all came as a package, right? But it literally it was like twelve hundred dollars an hour. It was ridiculous. All of which, though, is to say that in modern movies and TV, the fashion is for a more naturalistic sound. That's hard to understand. It can be muddier, yeah. You sac for the realism. You sometimes sacrifice some of the clarity of a studio-recorded, independently mixed dialogue track. If you go to a good cinema with decent sound, where they've got properly separated, you know, seventy speakers, and there's a dialogue speaker coming out the centre screen, uh-huh. and the, the soundtrack and the sound effects are all behind you, rumbling away on subwoofers and stuff, you can hear the dialogue. And if you've got a decent sort of cinema surround system or you've got a good pair of headphones, you can hear the dialogue. If you're playing everything through a tinny, like, uh, crappy speaker built into your LCD screen, sure, the dialogue can get washed out. So what you're saying is, uh, of, of, your, of all of your uh, microphones, uh, their attenuation of distance is much more pronounced. They were highly directional. They couldn't pick up ambient sound if they wanted to. And this effectively led to uh, very focused sound production. Yeah, yeah exactly. And a very mannered sound production, which was directed very much in a sort of post-theatrical style, you know, where, you know, how actors project their voice on stage. Uh, so you're saying Amutinol's naturalism and sort of ambient, ambient sound. Yeah, I can understand that. But yeah, you're right. Everyone's watching with subtitles on. Of course, that does require you being able to know how you switch them on, doesn't it? Paul? It does, yeah. I do know how to switch subtitles on. Uh, on Google Play, however, I kind of went to the top, the settings, and it wasn't there. And then I realised, actually, <laughs> there's a little square box next to settings, which is actually just for subtitles. Uh, and then it came up, and I, I did press English, right? And then I, and I pressed not cancel, but accept. And then English subtitles didn't come up. And I was like, this was after three minutes or four minutes of not, you know, having subtitles. <laughs> And I was like, what happened there? I think it just it must have been a brain fart on my computer or whatever. So uh, I went back and then subtitles did come after about seven minutes. But for the first seven minutes, I was kind of relying on my schoolboy Japanese to, to get me through it. Sounds like you're already talking about this week's movie. So let's play the music. To hell with it. And the name of this film in Japanese, Paul, is... Uh, Ippon... Okay, I don't know. Uh, I don't quite know, to be honest with you. But uh, it is, in English, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. Mm-hmm. And it is only available in Japanese audio, so uh had to be subtitled for me. Hero, uh, before we get into the movie, absolute hero of COVID lockdown, this movie, okay. I mean, it was made, uh, and I think financed by a little cinema called Tollywood, which is tucked away somewhere in the middle of Tokyo, yeah, a little independent cinema. They actually financed this thing, and it was, it was set to debut at that tiny uh, Tollywood movie theatre, as you know, as just uh, an audience, uh, to an audience of 12 people, as just some sort of miniature sort of indie release. Okay. But what had happened? COVID had happened. Okay. I'm not quite sure when it was made. Was it 2020? Yeah, uh, 
I think that's uh, right. Something like that, June 2020. Yeah. Okay, so COVID had just happened, and uh, you know, p- you know, big, big, uh, big filmmakers were pulling the plugs on their releases, and uh, a, a major theater, a major movie theater chain, uh, Toco or Toho, were desperate for movies, and, and so they paid for this thing to be screened, kind of nationwide. So, I mean, it would never have seen the light of day apart from that serendipitous moment, I don't think. I mean, it has the air of a student project. It does, but not that much of an air. It takes place entirely, as far as I can see, in one city block in Tokyo. Uh-huh. In fact, we see, don't we, kind of around it as we start the film, there is a barber shop where there's a young girl climb, kind of closing up after the day. And then sort of two doors down or something in that block, there's a little cafe. Such Japanese-style cafe, really. All that kind of maple wood kind maple of... Maple wood, cutesy, cutesy. Uh, like Muji would be if it was expensive. But also, <laughs> uh, also just not enough customers. Too much of a labour of love kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they're all over Tokyo. The hero, the guy we're going to follow, is the owner of the cafe. Kato, He's called Kato. Kato, Kato, yeah. Kato, yeah. He is... Finishing up for the day and leaving the the sort of waitress, who I think it's called Ao, to close up, and he lives upstairs. So again, we're not even leaving the city block here. So uh, re- you know, sort of uh, reminiscent of last week's movie, uh, Happy Death Day, where they vignette the same kind of scene several times. In this movie, we're going to be kind of repeatedly moving to and from the same locations throughout the movie, which is a clever idea. But it's not a repeat-the-same-day kind of idea. It's not no, that kind of time travel. Not like that kind of time travel, no. He goes up to his room and starts doing some very quotidian things, doesn't he? Apparently, we know he's a musician. He's got a gig he's coming a up. a little everyman, isn't he? He's a nice guy. Yeah. He's got a gig coming up. He gets his guitar. He seems to have lost his plectrum. Yeah. Although, uh, they call it a pick, Paul. Is it a pick or a plectrum? I it's thought, it's I was a thought pick it was a... if you're playing electric. Oh, right, okay. He's lost it, so he's looking around for it on the floor. Uh-huh. And as he's doing that, his Apple computer behind him turns on, uh, and on the monitor, he sees his own face looking straight at him. He starts explaining. I imagine you found this very confusing, Paul, because it would all have been in, in Japanese without subtitles. <laughs> I think I was just switching over to English at this point. He was explaining to him. In any case, we get to see it again, don't we? So he is two minutes in the future. He tells him where his pick is. He says, "Look under the rug. The pick is down there." And then at some point, I think he says, two minutes is up. You better come down and explain this to yourself." <laughs> yeah. Now this was the head blow for me. It was like, how, what, what, what? Which two minutes? I was trying to work out: could he stay longer than two minutes in any, any of the two locations? Like. Would he break? He'd be able to see himself if he stayed downstairs in the future for more than two minutes, or if he stayed upstairs for more than two minutes. Well, this is a central question of time mm. travel movies, isn't it? Is can you do differently now in Tenet that I was just going on and on and on and on and on about? They're very clear in Tenet that what's happened has happened. You can't change anything. It, yeah, it doesn't there's no free will in Tenet. In this film, everyone is terrified of breaking causality or you know, doing something differently until the very end when we'll, we'll come to that, no doubt. But it's like they its like they can know what their causality was having seen the future, if that's the only version of the future, and therefore they can make a conscious decision to do something else. But, but they generally don't. They, they generally, generally don't. Whereas you might say, even if they decide to do something else, that's already accounted for in that future version. So, depending on you, <laughs> how you view future. So, it would be pointless to try and do that, wouldn't it? Kato runs downstairs, and downstairs there is a monitor for their CCTV or whatever, <laughs> and it seems to be connected to his monitor. His I thought this is Apple. just such a powerful prop. You know, these yeah. two, you know, these two everyday TV screens or monitors doing what they did in the movie. You know, it's just. But I'm going to ask you this question now, that must have occurred to you, I'm sure. Why didn't they just use two laptops? Well, we have to assume some sort of magical or sort of time-trippy break in the flux is happening there. 
Sure, sure. Okay, we'll come back to so that. It, I'll come mean, back to it's that. not like it's just going to happen to laptops. It's, it's happened to these two electrical devices seemingly simultaneously, and that's why. I guess it must happen in this world to individual devices, but it's happened to two next to each other, maybe by chance, and this is how we've well, got look, this I, weird I loop. think what we're, what we're given to understand, probably, is that he uses his laptop sometimes to monitor like a security cam, yeah. the camera downstairs. Uh-huh. But now, for some reason... There is a two-minute delay, and that would be fine if it wasn't for the fact that it was a live two-minute delay. Yes. <laughs> so he goes downstairs, and he sees on the sort of CCTV monitor thing, he sees himself in his room upstairs, uh, bending down looking for his pick. And, you know, he's, he repeats exactly what he says when he was upstairs, tells him where his pick is, tells him there's a two-minute delay, and says... So, you know, two minutes are up now. You've got to come downstairs and explain this to yourself. Now, in movie time, had two minutes exactly elapsed between those two moments? How strictly were they in movie time represented? Well, do you know, I didn't think to check, but mm. I assume... Fairly strict, I think. That it was very strict. Yeah. I'm assuming that this was time to... And, of course, it. you know, there's licenses that actually, you know, we cut. We cut it as we're coming down the stairs. That's why it's only one minute. No, well, no, but this film is presented as a one-cut movie. It is, yeah. I am sure there are cuts. There are concealed cuts. Pretty certain of that. But nonetheless, the, those scenes that there are are still very long, particularly for this kind of film. So the actors here are doing a, a proper job, you know, like a stage production kind of job with choreography and moving around the camera as well. Very clever. The waitress has noticed this weird thing going on and asks, what the fuck? Why are you chatting with yourself? <laughs> and he goes over and he wipes the slate of specials or whatever. That- I love <laughs> this. This was very naturalistic exposition. Okay, This is a really cheap way to, ex- to do exposition is to get somebody on a blackboard or a coffee board, you know, so well done. The waitress is a bit pissed off because she spent time writing the specials for tomorrow, on, presumably. <laughs> but he... He wipes it off and he draws a diagram to explain something about a two-minute delay past. And I mean, I couldn't read the bits on the slate. You, you may have had more luck, Paul. Not really. No. Um, so he goes back to his room to experiment. I suppose when he gets back up there, he's on screen again from downstairs, and he's telling him, "Can I move on?" That someone called Comia. It's coming soon, he's and he's going to he's going to freak out. He then watches himself with Kamiya, this guy coming in through the door behind, and Kamiya comes in and asks if he's if this is a recording. If is this if you've got a YouTube channel, <laughs> <laughs> Kamiya realizes that the guy on screen is responding to him because he says, you know, kind of what you're doing, and he goes, no, you know, nothing much or something. Again, future him says two minutes is nearly up. So he's got to sort of run downstairs again. He <laughs> runs downstairs and he starts looking into the monitor and telling upstairs him uh, that he's got to come down. No, no, because Comio is about to go into the shop. And he knows that because he passed on the way. He passed him chaining his bike up So outside. at this point, the longest conversation they can have is two minutes, okay? Aye, that's Does right. Does that make sense? Because... It- yeah. In order to have a conversation, he's got to be away in two minutes to be down to have the conversation when it begins, okay? So the longest time they can ever interact is two minutes, and then they must swap places to continue the conversation. And he's telling himself that it's not a dream, because initially he was assuming he was, like, delirious or something. And Kamiya comes in to the door, as you saw on the video earlier. He starts conversing in the same way with the guy on the screen. And uh, he has to tell him to come down, that two minutes is nearly up. Uh, and then... The waitress has now figured out by watching and looking at the slate that it's like a time TV, which is what she calls it. Yeah, she was a bit slow, wasn't she? Let's face that. I think she was pretty fast, Paul. Really? He'd already explained it to her on the on the on the. Table. I know, but he barely believed it. Oh! So, but they decide to all go up to his room, <laughs> and on the way up, it's quite common uh, this movie, isn't it? Like, it's, it's just, oh, it's very funny. You yeah. know. The way they just sort of tramp together, how he doesn't really want more people to know, but it's just inevitable. You just know tons of people are going to come crashing through this door and more and more people are going to find out about this. 
Well, Kato is getting increasingly upset by the whole thing, isn't he? He's baby, isn't it? You know, I guess you might feel some sort of possessiveness towards him. Well, he's weirded out by it. He doesn't know what's really going on. He thinks it might be dangerous. He's probably right. And hes I think he's also a bit upset that people are just going to tramp into his room. <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely room he's got to. Because on the way up, Komya gets a phone call from his mates and he says, oh, get over here because there's something weird going on. Kind of thing. When they get up into his room, they're looking on the screen again and now they're seeing five people in the cafe implying that <laughs> Komya's mates I'll, I'll come uh, in, yeah. I'll have to. they're obviously in not very far show. away are they yeah. Komya downstairs tells himself upstairs to put something in his pocket to put some ketchup, ketchup. in his pocket is it? Yeah. so Komya says have you got any ketchup and the guy says yeah over there he goes to the fridge and he gives him a bottle of ketchup to put in his pocket and the the waitress tells herself to send one of the new friends, a sticker, which is a thing that Japanese people love to do on their messaging apps, I guess, isn't it? It's not something I've ever really done. I've seen it on my phone. It's not a big thing in the UK, is it? It's mostly emojis here. Emojis, yeah, yeah. Whereas in Asia, everywhere, it's all about the stickers. What are stickers, though? What are they They're, just, they they're just very small animated GIFs that perform an emoji and function. But they're more complicated than a smiling face. Yeah, know. yeah. I mean, you download a series, so you might have, you know, cute little, cute little podgy hedgehog stickers, or you might have ones with sort of uh, an avenging kung fu grandma kind of thing, or you know, and they do little animated sort of things to various things like "well done" or "give me some money" or whatever kind of message you want to send. There's a thing about an emoji because an emoji is a very generic thing. Mm-hmm. It has a quite an intentional kind of meaning. It's got, a, oh, very you much. You know what so. I mean? Yeah. Whereas, like the weak smile in Asia, you know, the smile that just means happy here is actually uh, a sarcastic smile of disapproval in Asia. Oh, the, oh. the emoji smile, the normal emoji smile, you can't use it in Asia because it actually means ah. you know, really bad things. Right, it's like damning with faint praise kind of thing. Yeah. Like, the more expressive your art gets, like if you do a special sticker with a hedgehog on it, I think the meaning is kind of diluted, isn't it? Or would you not agree with that? It just becomes like a cute hedgehog, doesn't but do it? We communicate to, do we communicate to communicate the meaning of our words or to communicate who we are as people? And you're saying the hedgehogs are more the latter? Yeah. I mean, the only reason you're talking is so you can show people you, you're cute to hedgehog. That's right. Can I present a pop sociological theory here? Mm-hmm. Completely amateur. Is it oh, that. Oh, not like the rest of sociologists. <laughs> is it that. Sorry, all sociologists. Is true. it a culture that has a sort of pictographic language or ideographic language is more open to. Potentially. Hmm. I, know. I was watching a YouTube uh, movie about, oh, look at Japan these days. Yeah, very modern. You know, I went to this hotel and there are automatic cleaning bots with faces that are mapping out the whole room whilst we were still using uh, Roombas that bumped into the skirting boards, okay. Uh, and at the same time, what was he saying? At the same time, uh, you have to pay for, by cash at dispensing machines, how backward it is as a country, you know. And so, there's, I mean, there's this idea somehow that when Japan, or in particular Japan or Asia, generally is different, uh, that there might be... Uh, Essentially, so elementist argu- arguments to say why it's different. I think often those are justifiable. I think pictographic culture is justifiable. Certainly, you could justify the amazing productivity of uh, the, the hand dexterity of uh, Asian workers as something to do with the, lear- the way they learn to write characters uh, and the incredible complexity of their writing system. The fact that they can sort of, or, or they're much more amenable to. Uh, uh, sort of uh, embedding in themselves re- repeated but very highly sophisticated tasks in a factory situation. And, and people have, you know, looked at that seriously. So, yeah, I think there might be some justification for saying pictographic, therefore, uh, kind of eager to look at nuanced and subtle meanings uh, that go beyond the generic emoji in, in picture form. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, I mean, what the guy was saying, he was saying, you know, so backward this place, Japan, in so many respects. 
look at their websites. It looks like, you know, Yahoo from the 1990s. And yes, <laughs> they are informationally dense. And yes, when we in the West see websites that don't have a lot of white space, they do look old-fashioned. Are they badly designed? Not necessarily. I mean, it's just a preference in India, China, and Japan for informationally dense websites, you know, like they used to be uh, before we all stopped asking Jeeves, you know. Uh, but I don't necessarily mean, I don't think it implies a worse UX for Asian users. They're quite happy with that informational complexity and they enjoy it. So, so yeah. Do they have a little animated GIF of a worker in a, on a yellow sign with under construction no. <laughs> on every page? I don't think they do. It's simply that, you know, it's crammed in there like it used to huh. be crammed in uh, when we used to cram stuff in. Because we don't cram it in anymore, therefore it's seen as not just being old-fashioned, but outdated and shonky. But, you know, sometimes I look at modern websites, and there's just, like Western websites, and really there's just too much white space and there's too much simplification. You know, my Octopus Energy bills, it's like, it's like wading through, like, uh, you know, my statement and my energy use and all, all that's trying, they're trying to put it together in a nice, friendly way. Uh, and one, you have to scroll for about 85 pages to get to the month before. <laughs> it's all so spaced out. But it's, it's, like, it's like somebody's tried to present something fairly complex, like double-entry accounting, essentially what it is, you know, in terms of energy use and money and, and overall balance kind of thing, uh, to using, you know, like year six, year six math techniques. techniques. So I think there is an argument for saying that no, uh, that old-fashioned way of presenting websites isn't outdated and is actually possibly preferable. It's in the same way that all our logos have lost their serifs and they've become that standard kind of simplified writing. All logos have been simplified in the West. All websites have been simplified really, perhaps now beyond redemption. <laughs> Sorry, The waitress has demonstrated that they can tell their past selves upstairs mm. to do things like send a message. Because this guy looks at his phone and he did get a message two minutes ago, yeah. which would kind of be nice, when he was on nice Now, at this point, the waitress takes some pains to explain the relative nature of the two time frames. And I wanted to mention at this point the acting in this piece, in this film, because let me just say from the outset, the actor's done a brilliant job. But the acting style is one which I'm going to describe as kind of goofy. Mm -hmm. Again, I wonder if there might be a bit of a cultural difference here in the style of acting that they're doing. Because, uh, yeah, right, okay. So I had this noted down as I really enjoyed the Japanese characters. Like, I think they're such Japanese people. It's like an anime, right? They're slightly exaggerated behavior and the way that they. They choreograph themselves. It comes across a little bit like an anime, like a, I mean, an anime with no action. I actually think Japanese people are just generally like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you think it's naturalistic for Japanese, acting, isn't it? Like, there's a slightly geeky one, the guy with the glasses, who's who discovers, as we'll come on to, the big the big insight, you know. And I think his is a you know, as like the geeky sort of postgraduate student, or we never actually find out what these people do in real life. Uh, but you know, uh, he he is quite hammy, and I think Kato, you know, as the as the slightly downtrodden everyman, you know, his nervousness and his kind of slight awkward awkwardness around everything. Sure, I think you know it, it's 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 turned up a little bit, but uh, at the same time, you know, when Japanese people are enthusiastic, they are sort of quite quite naively enthusiastic about things. Expressive. Yeah, so I'm quite genuine at times. So I, I don't know how sort of hyped up the acting was. It's hard to judge, isn't it? It is hard to judge. I think there is a cultural difference. The new guys decide that they're going to go up to the room. They ask which room number it is. And, you know, at this point, Kato's saying it's all wrong and it's going to go wrong. When they go upstairs, they see on screen this time, the three of them are wearing... Three of them are wearing towels like wise men over their heads <laughs> on screen. So this is happening in their future, right, downstairs. One of the new guys brings out a scratch card and he asks the wise man which scratch card thing he should scratch off. And he holds it up and says, the one on the left. 
And he does so. He scratches it off, and he he wins. What did he win? He won something stupid. <laughs> I don't know, but, but it's he, obvious he at some need. point they're gonna start thinking about making money on it. He wins a Lord Mer something. I don't know, yeah. like a something bizarre. But he, he he did win. You know, interesting. You can get scratch cards in Japan that later win white cards. That's bizarre, isn't it? They run downstairs. The three of them. They all get excited about putting a towel on their head. <laughs> But while they were doing that, Kato had come on screen and shouted. They'd encouraged him to ask whether he should ask his neighbour out, the the girl in the barber shop. That's right, yeah. He was, you know, initially uncertain. But on the future screen, he comes through and says, she said yes. Oh, it's so sad. So as they're putting the towels on their head about to do their wise man routine, he runs off to the barber shop with a poster for his gig to invite her to his gig but when he asks her unfortunately she says no Not in fact she says no I don't like music <laughs> which is at least honest you know not <laughs> yeah, hanging on that line at all true true yeah yeah and when he goes back, he's obviously crestfallen. But the waitress says, but that's not what you said. You know, you better lie to yourself to avoid to avoid any contradiction. They know about this already. They know about contradictions. And they figured it out. Yeah, yeah. So he does. He runs up to the screen. He says, she said yes. Gets all excited and goes immediately back to the corner and looking morose. Because he thinks he's blown it with this woman. Now he's asked her. Aww. And the waitress, meanwhile, has tested the whole situation by asking her future self what the next Japanese era is. <laughs> Which is so weird. weird. It's weird because do we perceive ourselves in an era? I don't know, but does this mean that everyday sort of modern Japanese uh, waitresses are all staunch Japanese royalists? I didn't realise <laughs> I guess they are, yeah. I guess there must be a large number of the population who are very much traditional. So have we just left the Elizabethan era? You have. We're now in the... Ch- Charlie. Charlie. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> well, it can't be a, a cool-sounding word, can it? Like Elizabethan. No. Obviously. So I don't think we're going to enjoy being in this era. Now, she figures out fairly quickly that obviously she can only really see two minutes into the future. Uh-huh. And they all realise that it's quite a short sort of precinct. Yeah, it's kind of like, like you know, it's like you get a Christmas present and you're not happy with it. <laughs> One of them has an idea, doesn't he? And he runs up to the room. And as he's, arri- as he's doing that, these two chaps in trench coats arrive. Uh-huh. They, but they ignore them. They say the cafe's closed, you know, come back later. As he gets up to the room, he looks on the screen and now he's seeing himself with another monitor behind himself. And he's saying... His first one is saying, I'm two minutes, you know, in the future. And then the one behind him on the other monitor says, I'm four minutes in the future. He realises he needs now to carry the monitor, the Apple computer, downstairs. And it's at this point, Paul, I just want to ask again, why didn't he use laptops? Because we're now asked to believe that this Apple desktop PC has got a power flex long enough to trail all the way down... A flight that was stairs. Because you could see the power flex <laughs> hanging out of it, and yet... Yes, you could. Of course you could. So that was, that was deeply strange, wasn't it? Yeah. But he's broken. He's, he's broken through to the past the two-minute barrier here, hasn't he? You know, It's like breaking the speed of sound, kind of. He's breaking through the sound barrier. You know, Now he has an infinite feedback loop of futures and past relative to each other. Well, so we should explain. He's facing the two monitors, which both have cameras in, I suppose, mm-hmm. off against one another, facing each other, like a hall of mirrors, effectively, isn't it? Now you might think, how does that work? Well, it does work, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it, it does work. Uh, so now they can see, well, the monitor that's in the monitor is four minutes in the future, and the monitor that's in that monitor is six minutes into the future. So this implies that the monitor is not just showing an image, but it's actually showing the future. I think that's the whole... I mean, that's where we got off on this whole film, isn't it? I mean... Well, it could be that the the, the, future, the time travel exists dimensionality, with dimensionality, but is represented or can be seen through the two monitors. But that's not what's being said here. We're saying the act of vision or the act of observance by the monitors is somehow 
breaking through time. I suppose so. I see what you're saying. They describe this as the Droster effect. Yeah. And they refer I never heard to... Of it, well, I know what it is, but I've never heard of it called that before. Yeah, it's a kind of... It's a very MC Escher idea, isn't it? But mm. the Droster effect is well known by mathematicians and, who uh, study this uh, kind Illustrators and comics from childhood also. So it comes from the name of a cocoa powder, you know, powdered chocolate drink uh-huh. stuff, on the packet of which is a nun carrying a tray with the same packet on it. So essentially a first-level fractal, basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And obviously on that little drawing is another nun with another thing and so on and so on, with a commensurate reduction in resolution, but nonetheless, there (laughs) you are. That's what they've achieved here. And I think he's put a blanket over the screen at this point just so it doesn't recurse off into infinity and scare everybody as they discuss the implications of this, you know, that, that it could go off to infinity and they could see in the far future, ultimately. Uh, having discussed all of the possibilities, the waitress goes over, removes the blanket, and they see this sort of bombed-out cityscape. <laughs> like, all these ruined buildings and stuff. This is one of the funniest parts of the movie. They whip that picture away, and it's Cato there, and the other guy pops it and says, it was Thank a prank. You. <laughs> the geeky guy, who I think is called Ozawa. Thank you. I was trying to find his name, but I couldn't find it on any kind of, like, IMDB listing here. He appears in the kind of cascade of screens, about eight screens down or something. He's so enthusiastic, or he was. He says, uh, you know, I've got a message, you know. (laughs) And he says, uh, go to the vending machine. Uh, They've got a a zebra pillbox, which apparently is some kind of toy. It looks like a... What do we call those things? Uh, Pillbugs. No, that's what Americans call them. Woodlice. Woodlice. We call them woodlice, don't we? Oh, that's so what the translation version. was. I see. It was <laughs> American. Pillbugs. Pillbugs. They woodlice. Yeah. Well, pillbox, I think. He used to call it a pillbox. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. I see. And it was a big plastic thing that sort of curls up into a ball, like a buggy transformer type thing. Quite big as well. So he dashes off to go to get this vending machine toy, because apparently it's a rare toy that you can get. They're starting to talk now about, you know, using this for money, whether they could bet on a winning horse. They start talking about crypto and stuff like that. But they do realise that just like Cato lied to himself about the girl, you know, it might not be true and they could, like, bankrupt themselves in some way. The girl has an idea. She says, why don't we just ask our future selves about finding money somewhere randomly? So (laughs) she goes over there, looks at the screens. How many futures did they go through? Did they go through to find this money? I don't get how how their future selves knew where the money was so easily. Okay, well, let's think about this. What happens at this point is their future selves appear on one of the screens holding a wad of money and say, just go to the bins under the station and grab an old the, VCR. the VCR that's there. So the implication here is, Paul, that their future selves had been told in the past, by their future selves to go to get this VCR. And had gone there, had found the money, and then come back and tell their past selves to go to the to the VCR in the bins under the station. So the money was essentially unclaimed that had been there for some time. It was just there, uh, yeah. The question is how anybody knew to tell them to go there. And that's a bootstrapping paradox, which comes up all the time in time travel. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's the thing. They've just kind of invented this knowledge. But obviously, they have to go and find to see whether it's real. So they trot off to go and look for this thing. Cato stays behind. And as he's sitting there, the neighbour girl arrives. She comes in. She's carrying a cymbal. A cymbal, you know, an instrument, you know, a wobbly thing that you hit with a drumstick. (laughs) (laughs) It's very kind of her. She said, you're a musician. You'd obviously want a cymbal. This is my ex-partner's or ex-friend's. I wanted to throw it out, but He's not here anymore uh, and felt it might be a waste just to throw it in the trash. So would you like a symbol? And the cat says, yeah, thank you. I'd love a symbol. Yeah, he's going to give it to his bandmate. He's drummer in the band, isn't he? could always use a spare symbol. Now, as she's there, she obviously spots these two screens doing weird stuff. And she sees an image of herself yeah. being sort of attacked by a creepy guy we know lives upstairs with a knife. And she sort of freaks out at this point. The others return with a VCR that they've grabbed out of a bin. 
<laughs> and they pull a wad of money out of the slot. <laughs> and then they immediately go and tell their past selves where to find the VCR. And whilst they're doing that, two rather rough-looking gentlemen, including the rough gentleman from upstairs, arrive in the cafe, looking for the money that they had apparently hidden, <laughs> or one of their associates had hidden. One of them punches Cato after he tries to stop them from roughhousing in his cafe. And well, I mean, they they decide to kidnap. They're trying to say it's nothing to do with us. We just found it. Oh, this is funny. This is so funny. And at that point, the the replay on the TV <laughs> pops up, telling them where to go and find the uh, the money in the VCR. <laughs> it is so funny. Good, great timing. Of course, everything's happening on a two minute cycle. At that, the the, the tough guys, the heavies get upset that yeah, Jordan's enough, yeah. a knife and he drags the girl he's got nothing the to do with it yeah, yeah. drags her out whilst they're going past the screens Cato appears on a future screen and says I'm coming to help <laughs> I'm coming to save you when Cato comes around uh-huh. Ozawa has come back where he's got his plastic bug and he sends Cato upstairs carrying the past TV I think that's right isn't that, is that right? that's right yeah so they're watching the future TV. He tells them to go upstairs holding the TV. Again, on a ludicrously long uh, <laughs> ludicrously long extension cable. And he goes up to the office was where the tough guys are. that annoying nod? That was a joke. Extension cables on your computer and monitor are the least difficult bit to overcome the credibility of this whole story. <laughs> If you have a tr- if you have a trouble with believing very long extension cables, yes, you're not going to really buy this time travel story. <laughs> I think that's fair, isn't it? So Cato goes upstairs holding this uh, monitor. They're obviously watching downstairs, and they can see into the future. Uh-huh. And as he's going upstairs, they run up and give him things to help him. Why didn't his... they do the multiple futures thing here, where they could iterate several times on what they gave him? Well, this partly because they're separating the screens, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. So they're not seeing many minutes into the future, partly. Presumably that's how they found the money so effectively, is they use the multiple iterations to ask Well, they needed a few, I think they needed more than two minutes to get to the uh, station, didn't they? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, if, if they could get the future selves after future selves, they could search several times and then report that back each time to the past and therefore in the future avoid having to do what their future selves did. Oh, God. Suppose so. Yeah. Well, you've thought about this, Paul. The waitress is the first one. She brings him the bottle of ketchup, <laughs> tells him to put it in the front pouch of his hoodie that hoodies have, like kangaroo pouch. And then the next guy puts a symbol up his backside. Puts, yeah, puts a symbol in his back, in the back of his hoodie. And one more thing, I can't remember. Oh, the little oh, the, the pill book. Yeah, he says, he says, give it to the guy. He's afraid of insects. And so Kato goes upstairs. He opens the office door. They're busy tying his, you know, paramour up in the couch. He puts the screen down where it can see everything. And as he's doing that, they realise he's there. The tough guy draws his knife. At, at that point, I think he sort of lurches towards him and ends up, the knife ends up going into his belly. He comes out with all yeah. this, this red stuff on the end of the blade. Of course, he stabbed the plastic ketchup bottle. Really? No, the gangster, he's, he, I mean, he wanted to put the frightness on them, but, you know, he knows. He didn't want to stab him. The reality yeah. is, in modern Japan, you can't go around killing people. You've got to get arrested, you know. So he's kind of really shocked. And his mate's like, you're not supposed to kill them. You're supposed to terrorize, shit, to terrorize the shit out of them. You know? And he's like, well, and while he's panicking about it, Kato clocks him on the head with a golf club or something. Yeah, it's very effectively. So his mate is enraged and pulls a gun on him. And now pulls he's going to shoot him yeah. anyway. So he, he turns around, doesn't he? Yeah. Takes it on the symbol. There's a <laughs> clang. Spend some time inspecting the hole that the bullet made. No, that, that's the girl. Oh, the the girl, girl pulls it out and she has a look. <laughs> meanwhile, it's so funny, this movie. Meanwhile, he <laughs> gives the, the ball. He tosses the ball, which is the pill bug thing, to the guy. And he catches it and it opens up like a bug. And he's so shocked that he drops the gun and falls over and everything. But they don't tie the two gangsters up, did they? They kind of just leave him there. But he's defeated the guy with his items. They go downstairs. And as they're doing that, they're seeing all of their friends are now sort of collapse on the stairs yeah. and in the cafe, just outside the cafe, outside the door. And the two guys in the trench coats are there, who apparently 
are like future time space police. <laughs> There's some sort of like echo of Bill and Ted adventure <laughs> in the costumes here, or you know, those kind of movies where it's all a little bit kind of a little bit freaky. Now, obviously, she's really into him now because she, you know, he saved her from this fate. He's a hero. But these time space cops are saying that, you know, it's very serious crime causing a paradox, <laughs> facing those two screens off one against another. Very bad move. But it's okay. We're going to fix it all, and we're going to give you a memory reset. A memory Do you know break. when Douglas Adams does his kind of like officious, very powerful alien or, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's that it's, kind of humour here, wasn't there, where, you know, they're very, very jobless, but they're doing, yeah, you know, yeah. massively powerful kind of uh, things in the universe. So quite funny. So he measures out this memory wipe medicine into... Do you think it was just... They were just going to kill them? No, I think oh, they're, they're genuinely going to wipe genuinely going to put them to sleep and wipe them out. Okay. In Japan, is that normal? Is that a way of taking drugs? To have powder put on a paper square? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Rather than in pill form, compressed into a pill. You take it as a powder, apparently. But if you... Do you ever used to buy peanuts at the swimming bath and it came in a little sort of triangular, triangular kind of little cup? No, a triangular bag. A cone bag, but with sort of triangul- triangulated cone bag. I can't express it. You know how a normal paper bag is a rectangle in shape? <laughs> this had a pointed bottom and then fanned out to not a circular cone, but kind of like a elliptoid triangular kind of cone at the top. And it fitted just enough peanuts for, for your five pence. Yeah, no, I've never experienced that. I didn't so spend often, as much time like, as you in, in swimming they'll baths. put the pills, either powder or they'll put pills in those kind of little pouchy things. You can just tip them into your mouth. Right, okay. So, yeah, it's a standard thing. Interestingly, we see on the past TV that they're standing in front of the TV and and we, we watch both Kato and this girl take the powder and apparently That's wipe their memory. <laughs> The two Time Cup guys are going, well, you know, you've obviously taken it, so it's going to happen. It's destiny. They pass them these the two This is what happens. Obviously, Kato and the girl don't want to because he won't have, you know, he won't have impressed the girl anymore and she won't be like into him. So she is the one going first and she mischievously sneezes <laughs> and blows all the powder away. And then Kato follows up and does the same thing and the Time Cups are horrified. Well, you can't do that. You know, now you've broken causality. And as they're saying that, they, sort of they, fade, away. they fade away. In entertainingly of... old-fashioned kind of... Uh, <laughs> Rent-to-go of, style. Rent-to-go <laughs> style, straight, you know, from OBS, kind of opaque to tran- transparent slider kind of thing. So I love that. And then that's it, isn't it? Then Kato and the girl sit down and start talking about comics and Nostradamus and stuff. What a surprise. Okay, really nice and short, just 70 minutes long. I'm a big fan of a 90-minute movie. Paul, this this podcast is already longer than the movie. <laughs> if if uh, a movie's worth it uh, and can be fit into 70 minutes, I'm such a fan of that too. Although I did I did want it to go on for a little bit longer. It's maybe one of the movies I thought, well, it could do with being maybe 80. But, you know, it's it's a light sci-fi comedy. Uh, it did what it did. It went where it went. And uh, did it so entertainingly, refreshingly. Uh, I was just blown away by this, to be honest with you. Not least by trying to work out just how did this spurious kind of like two-minute gap thing, how did that mean? What, you know, could it mean they could be in four minutes in contact with each other or two minutes? I just thought it was two minutes in the, you know, at the end. Just crazy. There are two concepts of time travel fiction on display here. Throughout most of the film, everyone is behaving and acting as if you cannot change yes. the past. You know, you have to repeat. It's going to repeat. It's going to happen in exactly the same way, kind of word perfect. But by the end, at, at the very end, we see them break causality effectively and do something different from what was depicted on the past screen. And the consequences are... It's weird. Mm. Like, it always is about whether you want to break it or not. It's so strange. So in their cosmology, free will exists. They can choose to do something different. It has consequences, Bad consequences for the time cops, but it has consequences, but they can do things differently. Hmm. Interesting. Very well received this movie. 8.3, uh, 86% in kind of the reviews from critics and from audiences. So loved by all, you know. If Tenor, you know, was the high end, the high water tide of the prog rock of movies, uh, this is the rumblings and beginnings of punk rock, I think. 
very energetic, very refreshing, <laughs> very lo-fi, but not unplugged. Uh, not even the monitor from the bedroom. Yeah, just so much energy, so many ideas thrown there, and just a real sense of fun. I think pervades the movie. Oh, we've already said that it's difficult to make this judgment call, Paul. But what would you give for the acting then? I don't know. Can I just say before that? I just love the oh. dark turn it took. You know, although it's a comedy all the way through, it is. You know, surprisingly menacing in the middle. You know, when things just suddenly I spun on a curveball trajectory. But the acting, I, I love the acting. I thought it was convincing. It, it's hard to say what's cultural, what's not. Although I do, I take on board some of the ideas that maybe it kind of felt a bit keyed up, a bit hyper, and maybe, you know, not so, uh, what we would say, you know, real acting as such. Not, not, not so much what we, like, like in Western forms of dramatic acting, where we, you know, we need to, imitate reality or perceive reality to some great degree. I don't know really if those, if that evaluation of acting is, 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 is standard in Japan. I guess it is. But I, I think for the purpose of a comic movie, and a farcical comic, comic movie, oh yeah, it, it, it served its function. So I'm going to score it a seven for the acting. I mean, it's at its most mannered when they're doing the expositional stuff downstairs. Mm-hmm. It's, it all feels a bit posed and a bit stilted. There again, you know, They've got very limited opportunity to like do little retakes. You know, the whole thing has to stand together, doesn't it? Yeah. They can't just retake that one line or that what one look the, or that one. What was the piece. Uh, zombie movie that we watched that was purported to be shot in one in one go? Yeah, one cut of the dead. Yeah, and that, that pretty much was, I think, one cut. It would have been good uh, if one cut of the dead was actually shot as one cut. I think it was Not the actual movie of the movie. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Oh. No, I mean, oh God, we need to go and watch it it's, again. It's don't just we? A, it's 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 a, it's a movie pretending to be a movie that was shot in one cut. But it, I mean, it wasn't shot in one cut, was it? It, it was shot in one cut, or maybe two cuts. But really? It, it, uh, they yeah, need to promote yeah, that more, yeah. then, don't they? I think they did because they called it one cut of the dead. <laughs> no, but that's in the story itself. <laughs> no, is it? Yeah, no. yeah we're following oh, a, a, a production team that. Are shooting a live zombie TV phenomenon. Yeah, obviously, there's bits at the start and the end, like the setup where. The, oh God, we're talking about the wrong film here, Paul. <laughs> You're saying this was pretty much shot in one cut, one cut also. This, this was shot in one cut. Whoa! Yeah. I, I say there might have been a couple of concealed cuts. That's but... like finishing this sentence. One minute. If you want a job doing quickly, you know, uh, getting them by. Tell them time. they don't get a break. Tell them they don't get a break. You know. <laughs> Never ask somebody to do a job who says he's got time. Always ask a busy guy. You'll get it done quicker. Oh, amen. Getting back yeah, to thanks. it, you can't retake anything. They've got to do it all Whoa. so it all hangs together and they've got to hit their spots every time. That sounds impressive then, do you not think? Impressive, yeah, yeah. And I, I thought the waitress was really good. Whoa. I thought she was fun. I liked her. And, you know, the gangstery bits upstairs are a bit more sort of dramatic and naturalistic. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it a... I'll give it a sound. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's fair. You was going to give it a sound. He's group, he's group funk about this and agree with me. Should we do a uh, plot? Then? I love the plot. Uh, you know, I know there are, I think, uh, plot holes that are spotlighted potentially uh, by the team, by the, by the production and writing team themselves. Uh, nonetheless, it's highly energetic. It's really entertaining. It takes you along. It's easy to follow. At the same time, perplexing and evolving. It has to be an 8.5 for me. If only they had just written them as laptops, none of the extension cord <laughs> stuff would have come into it, would it? Everyone would have believed a laptop being carried around. Look, there was the only plot armor in here was was a symbol and a ketchup bottle <laughs> and a time traveling kind of communication. No, it's beautifully written. It's again, it's another puzzle box. It's been tightly scripted, uh, so. Uh, yeah, I'll give it an eight. Whoa, okay, high praise from the high priest of sci-fi over there. Right, Richard, how about sci-fi? Sci-fi elements. Well, the time cops show up with zap guns, don't they? they? Do. Sleep ray yeah. guns at the end. That's pretty I think sci-fi. they came out with Christmas crackers, or the Japanese equivalent, but nonetheless. I well mean, done. production budget wasn't as high no. as it might have been. <laughs> they also had silver tape around... Their um, trench coat uh, sort of seam, as it were. I mean, you can't get much more sci-fi than time travel. No. So from that point of view, I've got to give it an eight. Did it manage to draw me into an imaginative sci-fi world 
an alternative world. Uh, within the confines of a very mundane coffee house, yes, they did. For me, it has to be a 7.5. Oh. Time traveling intrigue? You know, the... A time paradox score, yeah. yeah. Grandfather paradox, a bootstrapping. Well, the bootstrapping paradox is on full display here. So, yeah, I've got to give it. Uh, I've got to give it a nine for it. Is it though? Because they can communicate. It's not. They can't, it's not just they can travel through time. They can communicate through time. I think it allows for bootstrapping, doesn't it? If I can ask you to do something in the future, you can ask your future self to do in the future. Then, at the same time as we're talking, you can communicate back. I don't understand why we couldn't tell people to carry symbols and catch the bottle. Yeah, but we know at no point does someone go off and do a citywide search for discarded money. True. So someone at some point says, go and look in that VCR, and they do. I like, I like the line about them using a VCR what, you know, instead of a DVD. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you didn't like the bootstrappiness of the bootstrap. No, no, I, I mean, but it highlights that paradox. Also, as I mentioned, the dual nature of the nature of time travel. Sure, they switch between you know, the two. Exactly, yeah. So I give it a nine for all of its time traveliness. I'm going to give it an eight for its time traveliness. It was impressive. Would I would have liked to have seen, even on the budget, some very kind of low key, lo fi special effects to kind of boost up that that time traveliness. Now, over the end credits, if you bothered to watch instead of just turning it off, you will have seen that they showed you how they made the well, film. Well, I didn't see that. I'm going to go back and look at it. Ah. Brilliant. The film, I think, for the most part, was filmed on tiny little cameras. It looks like they're taking it on iPhones, but if you read carefully or listen carefully to how they did it, the cameras were really small, and they used a phone sort of stuck on the back as a monitor. So they were like GoPros or something Uh similar, I guess, with a a phone stuck on the back that they could use, or a screen stuck on the back. And that meant they were tiny. That meant they could get... Very close to the actors, they could move them around really easily, which is what enabled them in part. And they, they, they had them on like a selfie stick, <laughs> so or, or a gimbal or something. Gimbal, yeah, yeah. Probably a gimbal. Yeah, but it meant that they could move in and around the actors really easily, rather than you know a big movie camera. Whoa. And you know, let's face it, Tokyo apartments are not huge, yeah. so and when they're in the office, so you can see how they had to manoeuvre around and place the camera to get those shots. Really clever, really clever. Okay. For a technical perspective yeah. and an overall score from the film, I've got to give this a nine. What is it? It's way better than the sum of its what does, parts. What does Disney call its big uh, sort of uh, LED screen kind of surround studio? Oh, the volume. The volume, you know. I think this is a real insight, isn't it, into how different cultures innovate. Like, if you think back to the original KTV machine, the original karaoke machine, it has its beginnings in like this, doesn't it? A bod- almost a bodge rather than a gadget, you know, sticking GoPros uh, with phones as monitors on the back of selfie sticks. <laughs> Incredible, you know. Innovative movie uh, and, and cinema making, okay. Uh, not, I, I, you know, not through ignorance, you know. I think there are lots of intelligent choices made by this team. Overall, for me, it's going to be an 8.5. I so, so enjoyed this, and it's a definite recommend. Hey, all right. Did you score? Uh, then... Oh, yeah, go at nine. A nine. Whoa, 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 whoa. High praise indeed. You know, it encouraged me to go back and watch Tenet. Whoa. But I would give Tenet a nine and a half or a ten. Whoa. If you, I think if you we have to watch it again and review it again, Richard. Well, is there a sequel coming? I'm up out? for that. Ah, yes, there is. I, I, three weeks ago, I think. Yeah. I think Chris Van Allen did confirm a sequel, which is amazing. Also, his other movie that is coming out soon is Oppenheimer. Ah, now that is something I want That is going to be good. Definitely. Definitely. So we know we're going to cinema at least twice this year. We've got to see Dune 2, I think. Is that this year? I was going to say, you know, before the sequel for Tenet will come out, an even better sequel to an even better movie, Dune. (laughs) And we've got to go and see Oppenheimer. Yeah, so we've got to go and see that, I think. Oppenheimer sounds like fun. And then Tenet 2 will be here sometime in 2027, I imagine. Probably. Tenet made... To write three over three hundred million dollars, you know, for a, a budget of two hundred million. Yeah, amazing. What are we going to watch next week, Paul? I have a suggestion. I was going to go into horror, but you know, like if we can do, I'd like to stay on time travel. Yes. What's your time travel suggestion? No, no, uh, that's not my time travel suggestion. I want to go back to horror. The taking of Deborah Logan. The taking of Deborah Logan. 
Okay. Well, my time travel suggestion for you is See You Yesterday. Okay. Which is available on Netflix. See You Yesterday and The Taking of Deborah Logan. Okay. There are our suggestions. It's, it's got to be your turn to pick. Can you give me a brief summary of what uh, See You Yesterday is all about? Of course I can. Going back is the only way forward. As two teen prodigies try to master the art of time travel, a tragic police shooting sends them on a series of dangerous trips to the past. Mm. Produced by Spike Lee. Do you know, I think I've seen this before. Ah, do describe the taking of Deborah Logan, though. It sounds charming. Okay, well... And where is it available? It's sort of... Oh, I'm just seeing. It's free of charge on Amazon. Ooh. Uh, supernatural horror film, found footage. It's supposed to be one of the best found footage sort of supernatural horror films. 91% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, one of the most effective entries in the popular subgenre. Named Netflix's Horror Gem. Uh, quite an old film. Uh, nine years old now. I'm just worried that you're going to be annoyed by the supernatural elements in it. I won't be annoyed if it's found footage. Right, okay, I'm going to go for the taking of Deborah Logan. Is that okay? Okay, okay. We're swerving away from time travel. time travel next week. Is that okay? Well, that's the nature of time travel. Sometimes you're present and sometimes you're not. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for listening. Until the next time, goodbye. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Thank you.